Hey, welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. Here at Foolproof Theology, we like our theology like I like my bourbon, strong and well-aged. Uh, today, I'm really excited about our guest. Uh, he uh, He's really a mentor to me, um, really helped me through my degree, THM, at Denver Seminary. But more than that, just been someone that's been a sounding board for me, someone I can uh, really confide in uh, intellectually and process with. Uh, his name is Dr. David Bouchard. Dave, David Bouchard, Dr. Bouchard is the professor of his theology and historical studies at Denver Seminary. He's also an elder at Cherry Creek Presbyterian Church in Denver. He's married to his wife, Nancy. They have two daughters and four grandchildren, and I think they all live in the Denver area. Um, Dr. Bouchard, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. I, I fulfilled one of your two criteria. Uh, you like your theology strong. I don't know about that. I can live up to that, but the well-aged part, I, I can fill that role. Well, I'll attest to your, your intellectual strength. How about that? That's, that's mainly what we're referring to. Um, gosh, I'm just so honored that you're on the show uh, today, this week. I really like to start out hearing more of people's stories. It helps our audience really hear kind of your heart behind why you are in theology, uh, what you're interested in. And the way I like to do that is really explore uh, the topic of people's dissertations. Um, it helps me as I consider if I want to get a PhD one day. Um, yeah. But it's also just interesting because most theologians slave away on a dissertation that uh, you know doesn't necessarily get published or see the light of day. And uh, really kind of goes unappreciated by by many people except for those close to the theologian. But um, you did your PhD at Drew University in New Jersey, and you right. did your dissertation on uh, Yaroslav Pelikan. Am I saying that right? Yes, Yaroslav Pelikan. Now, what about Yaroslav Pelikan? Uh, what made that interesting to you personally? <clears throat> well, first of all, let me just say thanks for having this conversation. I'm happy. It's a privilege to be here with you. Um, toward the end of my time in seminary, uh, Master Divin Divinity program, I became increasingly interested in what I'll simply call the intersection between theology and history. <clears throat> and uh, one, of, one of the topics, if you will, at the intersection of that has to do with an, an arena where Protestants in general uh, have talked very little and evangelical Protestants even less. And that is what's typically referred to as the development of doctrine. So doctrine as an historical phenomenon, doctrine as something that develops over time. And uh, to the point with Pelican, uh, he was probably writing about that probably as much or more than any other Protestant scholar uh, at the time. And so that's really what got me interested in him first. And my interest evolved from there. And did you grow up in the church, going to seminary? Was the development of doctrine something that was curious to you because you always kind of had a curiosity about how doctrine was formed, or what? What really cultivated that desire in you? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was almost literally born in the church. Um, I was the first baby born to a member of a church plant, and that 
church um, was, I was a part of that church, remember that church, the first 30 years of my life. So I, I, I am a, in that sense, a cradle kind of Christian. Both my parents were believers, my sister was a believer, and I came to faith personally at the age of 12. Um, I, I, I didn't go to seminary with, frankly, uh, a lot of theological questions, but I would say that it was actually my time in seminary that kind of stirred those waters. And over time, uh, my the first year of seminary, my least favorite course was uh, church history. And my next least favorite course was theology. No. Um, and all I can say is by the time I got to my final year, my sensibilities and interests had changed. And um, so I, I worked on a THM uh, while I was working at the seminary. <clears throat> Excuse me. And during that time, I used that. That was really where I kind of, it was during the THM that I kind of, I discovered, if you will, uh, Pelican um, and did some reading in Adolf von Harnack, who was kind of the the premier Protestant historical theologian of the of the 19th century, and was something of a muse, so to speak, to Pelican himself. So it was really during my THM that I began to really explore this, uh, as I put it, kind of the intersection of history and theology. That's awesome. That's a really important topic today, as um, you know, history seems to accelerate in terms of doctrinal development with the rise of technology and people being able to self-publish and share their own doctrinal thoughts. Um, but I think it's really important to kind of go back and explore uh, the development of doctrine historically. What about Yaroslav Pelikan? Um, what particularly about him did you find interesting? Well, uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned, in terms of the, the subject matter he was working with uh, included both, both um, re recounting, if you will, interpreting, describing the development of doctrine over time. So he, he wrote a, a rather significant um, five-volume history of doctrine. And then, but in addition to that, he he talked about the theory of doctrine, the nature of doctrine, and and again how doctrine functions as an historical reality. So I was really interested in both aspects of it, and he's one of the few people doing that. In in terms of what some people might call takeaways, um, uh, but I would say two of the most the the perspectives that he held and kind of argued for that have been most uh, influential on me that I've been most interested in is uh, one of those is that he, he used to talk about the need for Christians to listen to not only the soloists, but also the chorus. Hmm. And by that he meant uh, we, we need to study Augustine, we need to study Aquinas, we need to study Calvin, we need to study the modern giants, all of that, no question. But he also was concerned for the confessional and creedal 
heritage of the church, doctrine, not just theology, but doctrine. And so uh, he, in his work, in his own way, attempted to do that. He also, by the way, is often overlooked. He, he tried to broaden the voices uh, that were heard as we listened to the course. And uh, honestly, he didn't do that so much with regard to our current categories of diversity. Uh, he did some of that later in his career, but, but he did want to listen to pastors and sermons and hymnody and especially and liturgy and letting those come into the conversation about doctrine in addition to the so-called soloists, Aquinas and, and company. So that that has been that has kind of stayed with me. And then the other one, which you've probably heard from me more maybe than you want to over the years, um, he's really the one that sensitized me to the dynamics of the combination of change and continuity. Uh, and keeping in mind, he talked about the development of doctrine. And Pelican was of a mind, and I happen to agree, that um, we live in a culture that has an excessive, and that's the key word here, an excessive emphasis on an attention to change. Mm. We're attracted to change. We want to talk about change. And that in his case, he'd said history, including the history of doctrine, has been excessively focused on change, theological revolutions and developments without giving corresponding attention to the abiding continuities that have been sustained throughout the history of Christianity. So one of the things he would say in that regard is he'd say, for example, um, I can't prove it, I can't document it, but I suspect that every day somewhere in the world from the patristic era to the present, the Lord's Supper has been celebrated by who knows how many people every day, somewhere or somewheres on the planet. And that's that's for him an example or an illustration of the kind of kind of you could say quiet continuity. And so he wanted to see those uh, realities brought to the table for equal consideration alongside the, the revolutions and the developments and the changes. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. Uh, as I think about my own academic journey, it's almost as if academic institutions today, um, with kind of PhDs being um, more accessible than ever, mm. um, you can do those remote, but it, the whole idea that the, the topic you explore is one that needs to contribute to knowledge, new mm -hmm. new knowledge. It mm -hmm. almost uh, is an opportunity to have an exacerbated desire for change. That yes. that yep. we we should want to push the boundaries. That we should want to advance um, and develop something new that's never been said before or thought before. Um, where it sounds like Pelican would encourage not not thwart people in their innovation but uh, boundary that or ground that in a historical reality because um, otherwise it just becomes change for the sake of change. Does that sound correct? Pretty much. 
Yeah, and and I think in his own personal life, one of the ways this became manifest is that in the in the final decade or so of his life, he formally uh, became um, identified with uh, the Christian tradition that is arguably marked by more continuity than any other. Christian tradition, and that is the Orthodox tradition. Mm. So he was <clears throat> chrismated into the Orthodox Church rather late in life, and that's its its own story. Why then, and etc. But the point is, uh, there's no question that part for him, part of the personal appeal, in addition to, by the way, an ethnic and cultural appeal. Uh, another part of it was the kind of stability and continuity that he observed in the Orthodox stream of Christianity. Yeah, that's a fascinating topic. And I've always been curious about uh, Orthodox uh, Christianity. We have a, a church nearby that my kids always point out uh, that's Orthodox, and I have some friends that go there. Um, and I remember going, studying Orthodox uh, theology in, in seminary, and there were a, a few key things that attracted me. One was that all of them seemed to have giant beards. Um, <laughs> And the You're other, happy. yeah, they uh, they also seem to have a, a interesting pneumatological emphasis mm -hmm. that I think can be lacking in the Western tradition. Mm -hmm. um, not that it's better or like anything other than it's just it's an interesting uh, thing that they put forward as to how we interact with the spirit, how yes. we how we engage in the arts. All these things that really, and especially modern American, North American evangelicalism, are, are very diminished. And so it's been very attractive to me, at least intellectually, to go, what would that be like? What advantages are there in the Orthodox tradition? So it's really interesting that he, he yeah. moved that direction later in life. Well, and, and one of the, uh, I mentioned he, he uh, wrote a five-volume history of doctrine, and one of the distinctive features that almost every reviewer will mention is, keeping in mind, he was a Western scholar. Uh, he, he lived his life and career all in the United States. He was active globally, but he lived and worked in the U.S. Um, in that five-volume um, uh, history of doctrine, he devoted one entire volume to Eastern Christianity. No Western historian of Christianity, no Western historian, uh, his, historical theologian had ever given anywhere near that just quantity of attention to, consideration to uh, the Eastern Christian tradition. So, yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, it it kind of brings us to the topic of denominationalism. Um, mm. And we've yes. discussed this. You teach a class on ecclesiology. Um, it's actually, uh, I think the way you put it is it's like the study of the study of ecclesiology is the class you teach. Um, <laughs> so it's very abstract in that sense. But um, you've written a book on uh, ecclesiology, exploring Protestant traditions, and in particular exploring denominationalism. Um, mm -hmm. I think for most Christians, um, just lay people in general, denominationalism Maybe an interesting thing to explore, maybe something that 
Um, they can define themselves as like, well, we do this, they do it that way. It's just to each his own. It's just different options on kind of the buffet of Christian spirituality. Why, why do you think it's important for Christians to just know about denominationalism in general? Well, for, first of all, I think you you probably gave a, a an even, uh, what shall I say, gentler, more generous description. I think, uh, I don't think most people are much interested. I think if, if anything, uh, and of course the phrase post-denominational has been being used to describe particularly Christianity in the West, Protestant Christianity in the West, uh, for, for quite a long time now. Uh, and I would say that certainly numerically speaking, uh, you could make the statement denominations have been and are in decline, so to speak. Um, and accompanying that, I think that uh, beyond interest, there's actually a lot of people who the minute they even hear the word denomination or think about it, it's a bad thing. This represents to them tribalism. Uh, it represents narrow-mindedness. It, it narrow, all kinds of bad associations. So given, given that, um, among the reasons I, I tried to do some work in that book, uh, as the subtitle of the book indicates, it's an invitation to hospitality, to theological hospitality. So I'm not a promoter of denominations in the interest of having more Christians broken up into more denominations. That's not my interest at all. The reality is <clears throat> there are many, many streams of Christianity, including many streams of Protestant Christianity. And my, my desire with the book was actually to help Christians in these many diverse streams to simply have a better understanding of the people in other traditions other than their own. And in the process, um, perhaps learn some things and, and both increase their appreciation for their own tradition or their own location. And at the same time, increase in their appreciation for others. So just one brief vignette in, in this regard. Um, when I was in the process of starting to work on the book, I had a student who was from Salvation Army tradition. And they were expressing to me one day their dismay over Calvin and Calvinism. And so I just asked the student, I said, um, have you ever, you know, have you ever read anything by Calvin? No, haven't. Would you be willing? Sure, I would. So I I took the my first volume of Calvin's Institutes, and I pointed to a few sections in the first volume, and I said, "When you have a chance, take take this, and when you have a chance, read a little bit, and you know, let me know what you think." So a few weeks later, the student uh, came back to my office, handed me my volume from the Institute's back, and, and this is what he, he said. He said, um, uh, I want you to know that I have bought my own copy of Calvin's Institutes, 
and it's currently on my night table, I'm reading it as part of my devotional reading. And um, so that's the kind of, and it, it wasn't an attempt to move him away from Salvation Army, though Calvinist theology isn't exactly at home in the Salvation Army tradition, but it, it, it forced him to look accurately at what was and was not being said, and he obviously gained some appreciation for that. That kind of increased understanding and appreciation across so-called denominational lines, um, that's really my interest <clears throat> in talking about denominations or, or traditions of Christianity. That's great. And yeah, I think it sounds like it falls right in line with your academic interest as well as Pelican was kind of interested in the development of doctrine. You're saying, hey, we can all uh, learn to appreciate, uh, maybe not agree, but at least appreciate where right. people are coming from with more uh, reflection on yes. these different denominations. It's, it seems to me that for a lot of denominations, there's not a lot of self-reflective uh, action going on. Um, I, you know, you could criticize me all day for being non-denominational uh, and just choosing to remove myself, I guess, from any sense of uh, connectedness to uh, historical theology. Um, but something we at least try to do at the well is have a great appreciation for uh, kind of denominational diversity in that it, it's very much like Denver Seminary where you teach, where we have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds come. And the goal isn't to make you Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or whatever. The goal is to form people in Christ more. Um, one thing that I'm curious, though, about with mm -hmm. denominationalism is do you think denominationalism, what, what's the interplay of consumerism? And if we define consumerism very, I guess, broadly as like, this worship of the individual as I make my own choices in life, I, I view everything as, as something to consume, to satisfy what I be believe to be my highest needs. Yeah. It seems that denominationalism just kind of reinforces and almost encourages a consumeristic attitude. What do you think about that? Uh, well, I think there's, unfortunately, uh, that's clearly one of, the, uh, one of the downsides, so to speak. Um, I think it's important to, in order to understand and look at the, what you're describing, it's important to recognize the historical cultural context in which denominationalism has arisen. And I think it's, it's fair to say that um, now and, and in, the, in the moment here, when we're talking about denominations, I'm using that term to refer to the diversity within Protestant Christianity. So that's the frame of reference here. And in that respect, um, denominationalism is rather uniquely a byproduct, you could say, of um, or a phenomenon distinctive to the United States. That prior to the US, uh, the, the creation of the United States and the attempt in the United States to have at least in terms of law and formal policy, no state religion. Uh, and we can get it, I mean, there are, as your many of your listeners will know, there's there's all kinds of discussion about civil religion and a lot. 
yeah, I'm just putting those aside for the moment to, to say that um, we have in the United States uh, made a decision that there will be no formal state religion and that technically speaking, there's no particular religion that will be supported, funded by the government over others. That historically speaking is at least a distinctive, if not a unique kind of phenomenon um, historically. And then you take that and you add to it other layers of American culture, uh, the spirit of freedom, independence, uh, market capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you've, got, you've got perfect soil for just what you described, for people to approach religion, to approach Christianity, for churches themselves to embrace, however subtly, almost a competitive mindset because the reality, the reality is there is no state supporting them. And you know, if if they don't have people coming in, uh, and, and helping to pay the bills, that those bills aren't going to get paid. So I, I think it's one of the by, potential byproducts. Um, and of course, then the question is, well, what's the alternative, right? So do you want to go to a state-supported religion or a, a state-sponsored religion? Or um, So I, more could be said about that. I'll just finally say this, which is simply that whatever the reasons are for us be having the kind of religious we have, we need to be mindful and intentional about how we steward it. So if in fact, consumerism and a consumerist mindset to church, to Christianity, if that's a risk, if you will, or a potential downside of the particular kind of social cultural context we're in, it does not mean we need to overturn it, but it does mean we need to be attentive and mindful of that possibility. And so conduct ourselves in ways where we stay alert to it. And in the case of church leadership, um, however shrewdly, I don't mean deceptively, shrewdly keeping this in view and trying to steer people to other understandings of what it means to be committed to or identified with a particular body of Christian believers. Mm, that's a great word. And it's super challenging during these times when uh, there's different mandates for different churches on gathering restrictions. And um, it's really upending um, the ecclesial landscape. Um, from different projections, like uh, 20 to 40% of churches will close in the next 18 months, mm. um, anything like that. And so it's very challenging as a church leader. It's sure. almost, you have to think like a missionary as mm -hmm. you welcome people into your church and you're going, one of the things that they're bringing in, whether, I mean, even me, it's not like I'm above this notion, is a consumer mindset where I'm going to choose different products on a shelf. I'm going to choose different churches based on how they meet my needs or based on what I believe. And as a church leader, it's this, it's almost a balancing act between how much do I press against uh, that kind of the, the native 
uh, beliefs of consumeristic uh, mm-hmm. of a consumeristic mindset, and how much mm-hmm. do I accommodate to where hopefully I can see long term change from right. one one that moves from consumerism to covenantalism, where where we belong together as the family of God. It's it's a very challenging thing to navigate. It is, and and I would just affirm you um, and your your brothers and sisters at the well. Uh, because I know you are seeking to to be that, seeking to do that, and and you know when when we talk about denominations, I think some of the val- some of the reasons that I think denominations are not an inherently bad thing. I'm not denying there are weaknesses, but but just to say some of the things that that denominationalism has tended to cultivate that has tended to sometimes not exist in churches outside of denominations is what I would call a comprehensive and coherent vision of the Christian life. Mm. Now, having a comprehensive and coherent view doesn't make it the right view or the best view in in itself. But the point is that whether you're Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, go down the list. Within each of those traditions, historically, there has been a rich, deep, complex understanding of literally cradle to grave. How we come into the world, how we come into the church, what it means to be part of the church, what that looks like, and and literally, till till our bodies, our, our material bodies are put in the ground, There's a comprehensive and coherent understanding and vision of Christianity tends to be a characteristic of denominations. I think, in principle, that's a good thing. And alongside that, um, some of the words I mentioned used a minute ago, a, a complex and deep understanding of the faith often can be nurtured by being part of a rich tradition and heritage. And, and I'm saying this because I don't have to say what I'm just now going to say. Um, it's always wonderful, I think, when there are non-denominational churches that care about what I would call depth and complexity, um, not superficial, not just enough to get people kind of in the door, not, but really have a burden to want all people that are part of that community of faith to have a deep, rich faith that really can help them grapple with not just Sunday, but the other six days of the week. And I know that that's something that you, and again, the people at the well are seeking to do, seeking to be and and seeking to do. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's a a good word and an encouragement to me personally. So I, I really do appreciate that. One of the things that, uh, or books you had me read um, to really touch on this issue was by Peter Lightheart um, called The End of Protestantism. Um, mm-hmm. I think at the time I read that, I had no idea who he was. Um, mm-hmm. I, re- I wrote a little bit of a critical review of it. Um, and it, it turns out I actually enjoy uh, Peter Lightheart a lot, um, and a lot of his work. Um, what, do you, what do you think he gets right in that book? Um, because he does touch on denominationalism and kind of cast a vision. Uh, for the end of it, what do you think he gets right? Well, I think I think just so that uh, 
the listeners uh, here can can uh, understand what he's doing in that book. Uh, the, the title is a very clever play on words. So the title of the book is The End of Protestantism. And he clearly is using that word end in at least two ways. Uh, the end of Protestantism in the sense of the goal, the objective, uh, the trajectory where it's headed, the end as in where is Protestantism going or where should it be going? That's one sense of the word end in that title. But the other, the other sense in which he's using it is quite literal, meaning that um, he's saying there will come a day when Protestant Christianity will be no more. Uh, that Protestantism will end. And he goes on to say, this is a good thing. Uh, this is what it ought to be, that the, that the end of Protestantism in terms of its trajectory into where it's headed is to become extinct. And, and not, not only is he saying that's the trajectory, but he's saying, and that's right. That's where it should be going. And, and so he's exhorting Protestants in a way um, to think in those terms that Protestant Christianity does not, for Lightheart, represent kind of the culmination of what Christianity will be or ought to be. So that, that's the thrust of the book. And then, of course, he goes on a bit ironically as kind of a one-man band to say, so here's what the church will look like, or here's what Christianity and the church will look like when Protestantism has come to its end. Hmm. And um, so he's really trying to cast a vision for, he doesn't use this language, um, but, you know, kind of a, a, a pure or the, the ultimate true Christianity. And by the way, he would say that he says the same things with regard to the Orthodox tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, he's, he's not suggesting that Protestantism will merge into one of these um, or that Protestant Christianity will take the place. Of one. Um, he, he says all of them, all of our existing rather distinctive streams of Christianity will someday no longer be uh, and will have that kind of true, truly that the oneness of the church, the Catholicity of the church will be fully realized. That's a great vision. And I, I really resonate with that during these times where there seem to be so many uh, divisions amongst Christians over something as simple as masks or something as complex as race and justice. I mean, it's a great uh, vision for, for what we should want. I've always been perplexed by Protestantism. Um, not that I don't appreciate it. I mean, I've got a, a tattoo of, of a Luther saying on my body. So I, I, I'm a Protestant. Uh, but it's an interesting movement in that it's very much defining itself against another thing. Um, and when people live that way, um, as I myself do often, it creates a bit of an angsty presence. And, uh, and so I, you know, I've just always, even the idea of simper reformanda, the, we should always be reforming. I think that that's noble and biblical and theologically 
good and right. And right. at the same time, it can almost be reform for reform's sake. Um, uh, kind of what we talked about earlier, change for change's sake. Um, right. And there seems to be no end to this uh, reformation, so to speak. Yeah. And this is this is where part, rightly or wrongly, um, I, I, touching on these things is part of the reason why I chose that image of hospitality um, in, as, as, a, as one way, it's not the only way, one way to think about when I, when I stand and I see all these streams of Christianity, and let's expand it beyond Protestantism too, Orthodoxy and Catholicism, um, and then the whole menu of, of Protestants, you know, the, 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 the typical reaction in recent decades and increasingly is people look at that and they just say, Oh, that's nuts. That's broken up the body of Christ. I'm just going to be a plain Christian. Just mm. you know, give me kind of Jesus and the Bible, and and let everything else kind of fall. Well, that's at least at best shallow, and it's it's also unrealistic. Um, <clears throat> so this image of hospitality allows us to hold two things kind of in tension, and of course we don't like tension. And the, the one is to be deeply rooted, meaningfully connected to an identifiable expression of the church in this world. Um, to be deeply rooted, and that does not have to mean mean-spirited, narrow-minded, ignorant of others. So to be, on the one hand, deeply rooted and embedded in a particular tradition, sink the roots deep, and um, keeping in mind the Catholicity of the church, lowercase c, Catholicity, um, trying to, you know, learn about, understand, appreciate where you can, all of our other brothers and sisters in Christ who are outside of one's own tradition. And, and the analogy I'll use is, is a house, my home. So my wife and I have a home together. Um, we're, we're blessed by that. We have a home. When, when we invite guests into our house, we don't bring them up to the master bedroom. <laughs> you know, we, we don't take them into the storage room in the basement. We welcome them into the living room, into our kitchen, into our dining room, and, and we share what we have. And it's going to be different food than they'll eat at somebody else's house. It's going to be different chairs they're going to be sitting in. But we welcome these people in, recognizing this is our home, right? They have their own home. And, and, and then if they invite us, we enter into their home and it doesn't become our home. I don't walk into their house and say, well, thanks for inviting us for dinner, but you know, but be, before we sit down to eat, could we move the table over here? Could, could we move the dining table over here? And instead of these dishes, I see some others up there. Could we reset the table? You don't do that. You, you receive, you're appreciative, and when you walk out the door on the way back to the car, I might say to my wife, by the way, anybody listening whose house I've been in, I haven't ever said this, but it illustrates the point. 
as we walk out to the car, I can turn to Nancy and say, that was one of the worst meals I've had in months, right? Or, yeah. or I could also say, I really like that leather chair in the corner. Can we find out where they bought that? Uh, I think I'd like that for my study, right? This metaphor, analogy of, of hospitality in our homes has this combination of both deep rootedness at homeness combined with an open spirit, which both receives from others um, and, and offers to others. That's a great vision. I love that analogy, and I'll probably be borrowing that a lot. Um, one of the challenges in planting a non-denominational church is that people have no framework for the home we've built. So mm. there, there's not like a, you're Presbyterian, therefore this. Um, and so people often try to come into a non-denominational church and try to remake the home into whatever tradition they're used to. Um, and it can cause a lot of, especially I'm a relatively young leader, it can cause a lot of uh, feelings of insecurity, like, you know, is this not good enough? And one one phrase we've had to adopt at the well is, I appreciate what you're saying, and that's not how we do things here. That's just not how we do things here. And that's not, that doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong. It's just, that's just not how we do things. And that's okay. Um, there's actually, I, a, go ahead. The, you know, the idea, some people, I think we sometimes associate conservative views with narrow views. Uh, let me, and and by the way, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to get into politics and things here. I'm, however you use the words conservative and liberal, just to draw a contrast in whatever way somebody wants. But I think there's a tendency to associate conservative views with narrow views and liberal views with broad, wide views. I, I think that the reality is, and you, you'll encounter people who kind of behind the curtain will acknowledge this. Every community, every movement, every church, every institution has a certain bandwidth that it occupies. And nobody has a limitless <laughs> bandwidth. Uh, there are parameters. There are, it's true of families, it's true of institutions, churches, everybody. And and certainly there are there are varying bandwidths. But the but the truth is every group has its own kind of width of diversity that it embraces. And um I think we need, as we enter discussions about such things as inclusiveness and breadth and all that, I think one of the things is that everybody has to recognize we all operate with them. Now, mm. it doesn't make them right, therefore, so we have to be prepared to examine them, revise them as needed. But I think we have to all begin with saying, you know, we all have our limits. Um, and to obviously articulate those limits with as much consistency and integrity and and uh, clarity and grace as we can. Yeah, that's a great word. This uh, this topic of local church and denominationalism and the differences really is under the sub, it's a subgenre of the topic of ecclesiology more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, you've been known to say, uh, that ecclesiology rests lightly on evangelicals. Um, yes. And and really, ecclesiology is one of my 
Um, if I had kind of a top five as far as what I'm interested in studying and learning and educating people on, it is ecclesiology. I think it's one of the great weaknesses. Uh, you know, I don't fault you for teaching me that. I planting a church is just that tension came to the forefront for mm-hmm. me. But what what really prompts you to have that idea and put forward that idea that ecclesiology rests lightly on evangelicals? Yeah. Well, and and in that observation, I'm really, frankly, just joining with a variety of observers of evangelicalism, historians, sociologists, uh, theologians, um, who both both people from within evangelicalism itself and people kind of outside, so to speak, looking at evangelicalism. There's a fairly widely held view, and I think it's correct, that just this point that the church rests very lightly on many evangelicals. And by the way, I need to just give credit there that that's an adaptation of a saying by David Wells, who um, 20 years ago wrote about how God rests lightly on evangelical churches. And that's even more significant than the observation being made here. But I've kind of taken that that observation by Wells and adapted it, uh, not that it's of equal importance, but to say that uh, the church rests lightly. Um, and, and that is more true, I think, of particularly of churches that are not sacramental in their theology of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, just so that people don't misunderstand, I am not saying uh, churches that hold Protestant churches that hold sacramental theology are inherently better than those who have a view of them as ordinances. That That's not the point here. But the question of resting lightly, and interestingly enough, Chase, just yesterday I had this discussion in a class because we were in ecclesiology, and without putting John Calvin's name on the screen, I put a quote from book four of Calvin's Institutes, where uh, some of your listeners may be familiar, where Calvin basically says, and this is a paraphrase, not a quote, um, if you're going to have God as your father, you must have the church as your mother. And, And Calvin's quite clear that He's, he's talking about beginning to end, that we, we uh, from the time we are reconciled to God in Christ throughout our Christian life till we come to our earthly end, that that whole span needs to be lived out as part of the church. So I put this on, on a PowerPoint slide. And just put it out without comment, without attribution, who it was that said it. And I sent the students out into the group, into groups. And they talked about it for about 10 minutes, came back. So what do you think? What do you have to say? Well, the pushback, the pushback was, I'll just say, strong and pervasive. I mean, <laughs> there, there was nobody who spoke up and said, yeah, I think... Whoever this theologian is, I think he got it. He or she got it right. 
And so, you know, I said, so do you think that, what, what does it, what, does this sound Roman Catholic to you? And about six, well, some, yeah, it kind of sounds Roman Catholic. So then I put Calvin's name up there, and, you know, and uh, I just said, first of all, you can't question Calvin's Protestant credentials, right? I mean, he's, whatever you think of the solas, Calvin's all over them, all five of them. And, and this is how he views the church. Well, you could just tell that, that, that there was pretty pervasive uh, discomfort with what Calvin had said. Which, which, by the way, for those who don't know, that's perfectly fine that students are discounted. They don't have to agree with it. But um, so I'll just say that little exercise yesterday, what can I say, anecdotally was for me further confirmation that in kind of more low church, so-called low church evangelicalism, there's this real apprehension about the church getting too much authority or too much power or having too much control. And frankly, I think to the degree that is the case, I see it really as a, a combination of two things intersecting. Um, one of them is the distinctive evangelical stream of Christianity, um, which is very populist, doesn't like hierarchies, that kind of thing then combine that with the American cultural context where independence and freedom and we don't have a king, you know, we don't have a monarch. We've got, and that kind of capital F freedom, freedom, freedom is, is seen as being threatened or somehow compromised by having a, a, a strong church. Hmm. So I think, I think it's really a mix of both the distinctive shape of evangelical theology, spirituality for many people. And in our case, the further the, the American cultural context. I feel in such a bind over this issue because I completely agree with what Calvin said, theologically, ecclesiologically, um, and, and planting a non-denominational church as a pastor of a non-denominational church. People come, checking us out. Uh, we have new people every week. It's such a blessing to minister to new people every week and um, meet uh, meet non-Christians who want to come to church. And I, I have a strong view of membership and, and ecclesiology. And it, it's as if when I look at my son, my oldest son, and I say, you need to do this. And he goes, why? And then I say, <laughs> because I said, and then he goes, why? You know, it, it's like a foreign language when I put forward, like John Piper said, uh, in order to belong to the body of Christ, you have to belong to a body of Christ, which I think is a really compelling way to put it. Um, in, in another way, he's really echoing the same. And of course, this isn't, Calvin wasn't the first one to say this. Um, and as Calvin himself does, he cites Cyprian um, from the early Christian era, uh, who, who basically said, you cannot have uh, God as your father if you do not have church the church as your mother. Um, so it, it's not unique to Calvin. I think what's, what's stunning to some people like my students yesterday is they wouldn't be surprised if they heard a Roman Catholic say this. They wouldn't be surprised if they heard an Orthodox person say this. 
Um, but for this to come from a five solas person, uh, it's it, it, it's a juxt it's a jarring ju for them a jarring juxtaposition. They, they don't they don't they don't see how they can go together. For sure, and I think my my own personality just kind of being a little bit more on the intense side in leadership. Um, and when I say these things, I'm afraid some people have the perception that I, I, I desire control or authority, and and I'm sure somewhere that's in there, but uh, it's just an unfortunate perception that these kind of statements ha have for a lot of American evangelicals. Um, right. It almost right. gets back to what we were talking about earlier with doctrinal development. There seems to be, a, I, I'm, I'm naming attention, and, and I want your help on this, this tension between confessionalism and pietism. Is that a fair tension? Whereas confessionalism is this rootedness to tradition and doctrine and, and connectedness to the body of Christ versus pietism, which is more rooted in an individuality, a, a holiness that's very personal, individualistic, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, is, is that, are those off, are those, what shall we say, modalities of Christian faith often in tension? Yes. Do people view them as being intention? Yes. Um, historically, if we look at those terms, confessionalism and pietism, we will see historically that that they do tend to be pitted against each other, um, which I think is is very unfortunate. I think it's uh, and and I think it is something that isn't necessary. Challenging, yes but I'm not willing to say you must choose. I really don't think we ought to be putting ourselves in a position where we think these are two kind of ways of being a Christian that one must choose between. Um, and, you know, and, and as myself, you know, part of my own internal wrestling with this is, I think that I was nurtured and raised in what would be rightly called a very pietist kind of Christianity. And, and again, I was at the same church from basically birth till I was in my early 30s, the same local church. So there's no question it has deeply stamped me, so to speak. Um, and, and by the way, I thank God for that, my, my heritage. I don't look back on it. Um, with disrespect or dismay. I was given much. And as I have gotten older and, and you know, studied more just in my case, I've really come to appreciate the importance of what some people will call a confessional approach to Christianity. So I really, rather than thinking of these as two different approaches, I really think we have to view them as two different dimensions or aspects of Christianity. Um, pietism is one of the great gifts <laughs> to the church, and pietism separated from confessionalism can clearly go off the rails. And of course, confessionalism without appropriate degree of pietism can become a very cold, sterile, um, rather as esoteric kind of uh, Christianity. That's a good word. It, it's just been hard for me personally. I think most of the pain, pastoral pain I've experienced has been from pietistic theology. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and so I think it's a good, helpful corrective for me to hear that because in many ways, I'm just like, I'm going to go full on confessional. I think it's more, uh, helpful culturally to form churches and to shape society. Um, but that's a good word. We need both in our, uh, church traditions. Um, if, if, the idea that e- that ecclesiology rests lightly on evangelicals, um, if that's something that is true, what would what would it look like for it to rest heavily? If we could put it the other way, what what do you think would be a a maybe a, either a counterbalance or or yeah. what would be a vision for uh, ecclesiology having a more foundational reality for evangelicalism? Yeah, I probably of all the things we've talked about. Um, I may not have been qualified to talk about any of them. Uh, this one might be the, the, the least. Um, so let me let me make an observation about what I think has happened in recent years. Um, and I and I would stand by this description. So um, Protestants in the modern era have not, again, particularly Protestants outside of so-called confessional traditions, have not always had a robust ecclesiology. Then take that, what I would call it kind of a latent weakness, if you will, that wasn't perhaps as obvious. I think when we hit the seeker-sensitive phenomenon in the 70s and 1970s and 80s, that became so visible and so prominent and so influential. I think that was the kind of the, the first expression in this last, say, century or so of time of people who were sincere, committed, Bible-seeking Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who began to say, we need to do church a different way. And and I'm picking up on your reference to what would it look like, right? So the the question becomes, how do we do church? And and Bill Hybels and and others uh, alongside him, and and by the way, I grew up kind of in the shadow of Willow Creek. Uh, It was a movie theater where I used to go see movies and it got its name from movie theater. And I don't mean to pick on Willow Creek, but it's clearly kind of the, the first of the white um, mega churches that became influential. And I say that because there have been black mega churches for quite quite some time that don't always have some of the weaknesses of, of the so-called white churches. Um, but in any case, uh, Heibels and company were saying, we're going to do church a different way. And what, whether, whether they did it the right way or not right now is not at all the point I'm making. But just to say, ever since then, there has been this restlessness within evangelical circles over, we're not crazy about what we see in the traditional institutional denominational church. And we think church has to be done differently. So we're going to try something different. So I, you could roll that script from the 70s to the 80s through the 90s to today, where um, a couple of years ago at Denver Seminary, we invited a number of Metro Denver pastors 
young pastors, okay, younger, your generation, younger, um, all of whom were pastors of various kinds of, for lack of a better word, non-traditional churches, whatever's meant by that. And, and my, the point is that as we talked with them, one of the common threads, and I, this is not, what I'm saying is not um, a criticism because they were expressing it with a fair degree of humility, but almost to a person they said, we don't know what we're doing. We, we don't have a clue what we're doing. We, we know that the way we, we believe the way church has been done, it, it ain't working. <laughs> you know, it, it's not suited to our cultural moment. And so, yeah, here's what we're doing. But to be honest with you, we're not sure what we're doing. We're, we're kind of making it up as we go. And, and my point in saying that, again, is not to criticize these people who were so committed and, and in some cases had, had very good, solid churches that were being grown, but simply to say that that's, how they, that's what they found themselves at. We don't know what to do. We, we don't have models. We don't have paradigms that we're prepared, that, that we think are prepared so ready. And so we're kind of making this up. I think that is um, reflective. In part, they aren't well equipped because here the church sits lightly on evangelicals. Mm. And so there wasn't a rich, deep history of either theological, I mean, really deep ecclesial theological reflection to undergird. And so what one of the things that has tended to happen is the church has only been thought of in what I would call functional terms. How do we do church? How do mm. we structure church? How do we program church? And we we don't have a correspondingly rich, deep, thick, ontological understanding of the church. What is the church? What is the church supposed to be? I, I think that that we haven't thought about deeply yet. And so when we do start talking about what the church is going to do or how to do church, we don't turn to theology. We turn to the Harvard Business Review. We turn to psychology. We turn to George Barna and sociology. We'll look all over, partially because there hasn't been sustained deep theological work on the ontology, the, the very nature and being of the church again, particularly within, I think, Protestant circles. Yeah, that's a great point. And we were just on a... You should have on a podcast. Sorry about that. You're good. The, uh, there was a conversation recently in our context where a local leader said, no one cares about ecclesiology. And uh, I just and found that... I'm not asking a name. This was a pastor who said this? or a, a, a parachurch leader. Okay. All right. Well, and, and just sidebar... The whole phenomenon of parachurch, that is a quintessential evangelical phenomenon. What everyone thinks of it, I'm not going to comment, but I'll just say that is telling in itself that we have this parachurch phenomenon that has flourished in evangelical Protestantism more strongly than anywhere else. Yeah, it's a fascinating apparatus, and, and it really made me sad when 
I mean, it was, I was glad he at least admitted that that's what he perceived. Uh, yes. But it did make me sad. Um, I was on a Denver Seminary uh, webinar back when the pandemic first um, kind of hit with the lockdowns and such. And mm. part of the interview was, what, how has church changed? Mm. And the other panelists were very eager to pontificate on how church has changed and opportunities for change and growth. Mm. And I was one of the only ones, I think I was the only one that said, the nature of the church has not changed. We are still the church. This is what we do. Um, yes, h- how we do church, yeah, we have to get a little innovative. That's fine. But as far yeah. as w- w- how has church changed, it hasn't. We are still God's bride. We are still uh, connected to the Apostles' Creed in terms of creedal affirmation. So it was just a very, I was disappointed, and I'm, I'm consistently disappointed, I find, that uh, that ecclesiology is just such a throwaway uh, kind of uh, back-of-the-textbook topic uh, for many uh, for many Christians, for many evangelicals, for many churches. Yeah. It, it just doesn't seem to be something they care about at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I mean, as far as, as, you know, your question of, and this is where I said, I'm, I don't really feel qualified to speak. How, how do we change this if it's true? So assume for the sake of discussion, it's true. How, how do we change it? Um, a part of it is part is just having pastoral leadership teach this open, open people's eyes. Um, and I think, by the way, this is, unfortunately, ecclesiology isn't the only doctrine where this is the case. Uh, you've probably heard me say before, when, when I talk to students about theology in the local church, um, and right alongside of it, history, which is, here's the bad news. The bad news is that evangelicals have in the church world have too often, not saying always, too often, marginalized theology in the interest of trying to somehow increase accessibility or inclusion. And theology has been what they've kind of paid the price with by setting it aside. Um, That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Uh, If anybody does even a half decent job of basic theological instruction in local church context, my experience has been 90% of the time, people are incredibly receptive, precisely because, as one woman said to me, red-faced, when I was teaching a course on the attributes of God, why hasn't anyone taught me this before? Mm. I've been part of this church for 10 years, and no one has ever taught me this. Why? Mm. Um I I think, you know, so the good news is the fields are ripe for harvest uh, when it comes to increasing the theological literacy, if you will, in the local church and, and the, the foundation that can be laid. Uh, the, the challenge is, truly, the challenge is getting people just in the door. My experience is once they've come inside and, and just tasted a little bit, most people are are very receptive that's i, I anecdotal, agree anecdotal but you know i think people are starved for it and um and so yeah i've seen a lot of success and just having theological conversations that we don't divide over um we just want to develop 
theological people. Some people will reject that and and choose their own way, and that's totally fine um, for them. But uh, I think our society is is ripe for it. I think that's why I see a lot of my millennial uh, friends who who are evangelical or Christian moving to Catholicism or Anglicanism. I think they're hungry for a more confessional faith mm-hmm. um, that's more rooted and more robust ecclesiologically. One of the things that's uh, that's interesting, and this will kind of be the last thing we talk about. Um, I think that you are. I, I don't know how you would describe it. At least an interest of yours is architecture. Um, I know you went on kind of a road trip and checked out some Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. Um, and I, I think architecture a lot of times reflects uh, what we believe. It reflects our values, our convictions. Yeah. And so for for a lot of evangelicals, um, when it comes to like church buildings, for example, the idea right. is like we don't we don't need anything fancy. In fact, fancy may be bad. It's almost like iconoclastic. We just need a warehouse. We need a place, and that's it. Right. What what do you see reflected in evangelical architecture? Uh, well, first of all, I think an important preface here is, um, I w- whenever I talk about architecture, I never want to give the impression that you have to have some kind of an expensive fancy building in order to be the people of god or engage in fellowship and worship uh that's that's not at all the point and the fact is differing communities of faith have different resources at their disposal um so with with that kind of a recognition and the recognition that there are the questions of stewardship and the ethics of money all of those are need to be appropriately tended. I will say this, <laughs> that, you know, Winston Churchill was right, and, and this little saying gets repeated constantly, um, and that is that first, paraphrase, first we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. And so there is this two-way role of architecture. It does express our values, our beliefs, our understandings, good, bad, and different, they're reflected. And to a degree that I think most people don't recognize because 90% of the impact is tacit, it's unconscious, our buildings do shape us. They both reflect our values and beliefs, and then they they have a, a role in shaping our values and beliefs, often tacit. And I would say that dominant trend in the 70s, 80s, 90s was to go to non-church church buildings. And so you actually have churches that in the 70s, 80s, 90s, by choice, would go to architects who were not church architects and who were people who built movie theaters, community centers, shopping malls. I mean, th- those were the, the architects they would enlist to build their church buildings. Now, as you'd probably be aware, people who are building buildings, it's about transparency. So big, glassy kind of, you know, glass uh, open uh, entryways with coffee shops to the side. Um, and that, so there's an attempt to, to want to be inviting and uh, to also say we're part of the culture of transparency. We're not trying to hide from the world. And 
and in some ways, I think that's a that that's a good uh, a, a good tendency um, or a good value to try to communicate. Um, so, just to say yes, it's and of course now, as you would know better than I, um, with people wondering what church life is going to be like once we do get, I, I do think we will come to the other side of COVID. It'll become managed at some point. I'm not predicting when or how. I do think it will. And I think the truth is uh, changing continuity. <laughs> I think some things are going to be very different. And as you would rightly point out, some things are going to be the same. So I think it'll be interesting to see what architecture, church architecture will be like beginning, say, two, three years from now. When, when people are thinking about building churches, how will these past this year and following shape that? And the point is, I just think it's worth thinking about. It's worth giving, worth giving thought to. Yeah, that is a really an interesting thing to explore is how the built environment shapes us. Um, you know, my, my first year in undergrad was in architecture and I've always mm. had a affinity for uh, the built environment. Um, and it's hard as a pastor running a middle school, um, or at least we were until COVID hit, um, mm. for me mm. to walk in there every week and have a, what feels like a juvenile environment while I, I try to teach this robust ecclesial uh, reality. Um, right. It's almost a, a contradiction with the built environment. And so hopefully one day we'll be able to um, get our own building. We're moving into a season where we are as a church. We're pursuing that. And okay. um, and so it, it will be interesting over the next few years what that uh, what that will look like as we pursue uh, that reality for the well in Boulder. Um, right. As we kind of close out, I wanted to make sure people knew um, about your book, Exploring Protestant Traditions. I'm assuming that's available on Amazon. Is that right? It is. Yeah, exploring Protestant traditions and invitation to theological hospitality. It's InterVarsity um, Academic Press. That's great. It's a great uh, book that that picks up on a lot of uh, viewpoints from different denominations. And if you're in the Denver area, you can enroll in uh, Dr. Bouchard's class. You can audit those. Um, I really enjoy his teaching. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for being here. Pure Next pleasure. Next week, we'll have uh, Toby Kurth. Toby Kurth is a pastor in San Francisco, started his PhD at Stony Brook, and then God called him to plant a church. We'll be talking mm -hmm. about pietism, Jonathan Edwards, and, um, and other things in terms of the history of doctrinal development. So make sure if you like this podcast, uh, give us a great review, share this with other people. If you enjoy the YouTube channel, share this video with others. And until then, we'll see you next time.